0: This is Everyday Wellness, a podcast dedicated to helping you achieve your health and wellness goals and provide practical strategies that you can use in your real life. And now here is your host, nurse practitioner, Cynthia Thurlow. Yeah, today I'm excited to have Dr. Sylvia Tara. She was driven to research fat, science, and lifestyle after she finally got fed up with eating less and exercising more than her slimmer friends throughout her life. Her experiences told her there was more to weight loss than just calories in, calories out. And as a biochemist, she was driven to get to the bottom of fat's mysteries and the reason it vexes us. In her bestselling book, The Secret Life of Fat, which I loved reading, she reveals the complex biology of fat, how it resists loss, and what to do to remove stubborn fat. She holds her PhD in biochemistry from the University of California at San Diego and an MBA from the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. Welcome, Dr. Tara. It's so nice to connect with you.
1: It was great to be here.
0: Well, I always think the backstory behind the impetus for writing a specific book is really interesting. And as we were talking about before we started recording, this is not about dietary fat. This is talking about the amazing organ that is fat. So let's talk a little bit about what was your initial impetus for writing the book. I know it was some of your own life experiences and frustration with antiquated dogma, which really doesn't give us the full clinical picture of why it's challenging to lose weight.
1: Yeah, that's right. So I always noticed I gained weight very easily. Like there's a lot of people who are all kind of different, right? There are people who can eat whatever they want and nothing bad happens. They were skinny as a rail. Mm-hmm. And then uh, there was me. And I felt like I had to count every calorie. I had to exercise, be on top of it. And even then I had an extra layer of fat compared to other people, You know, you try all these diets, you're always lured in by you can lose weight fast. And, you know, of course, this is an obvious diet, it's based on science. And so you go down these paths. But even then, I had real challenges losing weight. So I got very tired of this. And after, I don't know what, maybe 25, 50 diets in my life, right? I thought, okay, I have to understand my fat. There's something going on in my body. It's not typical. Other people aren't having this experience, but I'm going to understand this. So I'm a, a biochemist by training, um, a PhD in biochemistry. And I just used every tool at my disposal. I pulled every possible research paper on fat and I've <laughs> learned what was being researched in fat. I picked up the phone. I talked to a bunch of researchers about their, the research on fat and I found out things that were so surprising. And it answered all of my questions about why I was having difficulty losing weight. And I thought I have to publish this because I bet you I'm not alone. I've known other people like this and it's really about understanding your own fat, your own body, and why it might be easier or harder for you, and then what you can do about it. And mm-hmm. those answers aren't always easy, but at least you know what the answer is now. So
0: that's, well, that's what the life of fat is about. Well, and I think it's really critically important for acknowledging, as I know you do, about bioindividuality. So what works for your best friend or your mom or your spouse? You know, men seem to have a little bit of an easier time in many ways of losing weight than women do. And that really speaks to the hormonal piece that you write about in the book. And so I'd love for you to kind of touch on, you know, initially what was the most surprising aspect of fat when you were digging into the research and really looking at, you know, what others had done. I know a lot of it was done on rodent models, which is for anyone that's listening, that's really where it starts. It starts on animal-based models before we do anything with humans. And so one of the things I found really interesting was, you know, this particular gene that was found in a mouse that, you know, was the basis for what ultimately became named leptin. But I'd love for you to touch on, you know, some of the science behind what was being done to really look at this problem.
1: This was fascinating. And so, I think to answer your first question, what was most surprising to me, it was the fact that fat is not just fat the way we think about it. We like to think of fat as just a plain old repository of calories You know, it's vestigial, it's when there was famine in the world, your body needed a way to store calories so you could get through famine, but it's a a vestigial relic. We don't need it anymore. We should be as thin as possible. (laughs) And when I found out that it's so untrue, right, I mean, that is such an old world way of thinking about it, you know, that really fat is critical for your body and not just as a reserve of calories, but it actually is an endocrine organ. So it's releasing hormones that your body depends on. So think of it as as really not different than your thyroid gland, your adrenal gland, your pituitary gland, any organ in your endocrine system that's releasing a hormone that your body needs to survive, right? Fat is doing the same thing. So it has multiple functions, not just to provide calories, you know, in a time of need. It's also releasing some of the hormones, leptin. It releases estrogen. In fact, women, you know, once they go through menopause and their ovaries stop producing estrogen, they start depending on their fat for estrogen. Adiponectin is another one. And there's a whole host of others. There's resistant, there's tons. And and all this research is fairly new because there wasn't a lot of investment in fat research until around the eighties or so. When when obesity started happening, people were getting worried. It's like, okay, we have to understand what, what fat really is. And so all of a sudden there's funding put into fat research and diabetes and obesity. And so what we're finding out about fat is still very new. And there's a lot more to find out. So all these other hormones that they've identified, they don't exactly know what every one of them is doing, but we'll find out in time. And I think we're going to find out more and more that fats is very complex organ in our body. And I know sometimes people have trouble getting their head around an organ. What do you mean? Think about it like skin. It's like if you have a, a square inch of skin, it's just a piece of skin tissue, but your skin in its totality, right, is an organ and your fat's the same way. Just like a, a biopsy of fat means nothing. It's a piece of tissue. But in its totality, all around your body, it's acting like an organ that's actually secreting hormones.
0: I think what's really interesting is, you know, I trained back at a very large research institution in the 90s, and we didn't think about fat being this this very sophisticated organ. It's only really been, you mentioned the 80s was when the research was really being generated. But oftentimes when you're at an academic center, you know, that will lag in terms of what educational content is shared with you. And so for me, it was really fascinating. If you start to dive down the rabbit hole of the hormonal piece and you really think about what leptin does, and it explains a lot about behavior, you know, communication between that fat tissue and the brain. And and I would love for you to talk about this because leptin resistance very often belies insulin resistance. And since we have a population that is increasingly overweight and obese and insulin resistant, if not diabetic, really critically important to kind of talk about this discovery, which as you mentioned, was not all that long ago.
1: Yeah. So, so leptin has a lot of functions in your body. So your, your fat releases leptin, right? It goes into your blood, it circulates throughout. And once it starts circulating throughout, right, your, your circulatory system, it has a lot of effects on the tissues that it's circulating to. So one area it goes to is your brain, right? Your hypothalamus, leptin will bind with the cells in your hypothalamus. And what it does in your hypothalamus is it signals satiation, right? So if you have like a healthy level of fat, you have, you know, your normal amount, you overall feel satisfied. Of course, you get hungry at mealtime, right? You eat something, but overall you feel pretty good. When you start losing fat, you start having less leptin, right? And that delta, right? That difference in your leptin level when you start losing your fat it's a signal to your brain, right? It senses a little bit less left down. It's like, okay, something's wrong. We're losing fat. Something's wrong in our environment. There's a famine coming. There's something (laughs) going on. We got to look for food, right? So so people, as you start losing weight, you get hungrier, actually. Your brain gets much more attentive to food. In fact, when they do fMRI images on people's brains that have lost 10% of their weight, their brains light up, this excitatory centers of the brains light up wildly when they look at food, right? Compared to people who've not lost weight. So our minds change in a way fat is controlling your brain and how you think and how you live, right? It's it's making you want to like react to food, look for food um, and, and load up your plate more. So that's really interesting. And then the other thing is that leptin also binds to skeletal muscle, right? And so when we have lower levels of leptin, right, the muscles sense this too, something's wrong in the world. So once again, let's conserve energy. You start going to more efficient ways of burning energy in your muscles. So you burn 22% fewer calories when you start losing weight. And it's been studied about 10% weight loss. So somewhere in there. So you're a lot hungrier and you're burning less calories, right? So there's a caloric penalty. And so what it means is someone who say, is 170 pounds and lost 20 pounds to get to 150, if you compare them to the person who's 150 naturally, right, without having to lose those 20 pounds, the person who's at 150 naturally can eat more, and they're less hungry, right, than the person who's lost weight to get there. Person who's lost those 20 pounds has to eat 22% fewer calories than the person naturally at 150, and they're a lot more hungry all the time. Mm. And so what was enlightening to me is that There's so many diet programs out in the world that will say, oh, if you follow this diet, you will never feel hungry. You'll lose 20 pounds and, you know, right away, you'll have no problem. And and by the way, if this isn't working for you, you're doing something wrong, right? You must, and it leads to dieting failure, makes you feel like a failure because you are hungry when you lose weight, right? It is harder to lose. You lose at a slower rate when this happens. And so having this information some people think is depressing i found it enlightening it was like at last i have found my problem this is why i have trouble losing weight compared to other people i have yo-yo dieted so much in my past i've gained and lost my body's responding it's now very smart my fat's smart it's sending out signals to my brain and my muscles saying look for food and burn fewer calories you have to pick a diet that you like because you're going to have to be on it for a long time that effect i mentioned that caloric penalty you know, it's been studied for up to six years and it doesn't go away for everybody. So for some people, for the long term, they are hungry and burning fewer calories. So it's just something to be mindful
0: of. And it's kind of the key to being a successful dieter. And I think it's really critically important for those that have been yo-yo dieters their entire lives. And if you look at the research behind yo-yo dieting and how people are more likely to gain the weight back and then some, it really speaks to whatever you're doing needs to be sustainable and a lifelong choice. I think sometimes the word diet gets misused because people think, oh, I just have to do this for four to six weeks and then everything magically will remain that way for the rest of my life. And our bodies really like homeostasis. They like this set point that I know you talk about in the book And so I see so many women in particular, they get frustrated because they'll lose the weight they're looking to lose. And it may not be the point their body wants to be at. It might be way less. And so what will their body do? It's almost like that rubber band, the rubber band, you can stretch the rubber band so far. And then the rubber band wants to come back and be centered again. And so what do you typically do if you're talking with women who come to you? I'm sure they probably do saying, you know, this yo-yo dieting, I think it's really messed up my metabolism. I would imagine that you probably providing some of the information that you just shared with our listeners, but what are some of the strategies people can do if they're trying to be very mindful of the fact that now they've lost this weight, they have to be even more cognizant of what food intake they're utilizing, recognizing that their muscles are not burning as many calories. And so they've effectively kind of slowed their metabolism down by this you know, weight loss effect.
1: Yeah, and I'm one of those women. So I'm right in there with them, right? This is my problem and why I wrote the book. You know, and what I learned to do, which I write about as well, there's just certain tricks you have to learn. One is that no, pick a diet that's gonna work for you mm-hmm. forever, right? Don't pick one, like you said, you're not really gonna be able to come off mm-hmm. So diets, like there's all different reasons you know to go to go on. One is effective; you are losing weight. That's a good diet, but also one that works with your lifestyle. And so there are some diets, like very low carb diets, like the Atkins diet, right? They're effective; people lose weight. They can't stay on them because psychologically it's too much to bear. They want some carbs sometime. They want to have a dinner with their family. So you have to pick a diet you personally can stay on for a long time. Works with you psychologically, socially, and you're losing weight on it. So that's your first step is know that this is going to be a lifestyle, like you said. Now, the second step is that there's certain things you can take advantage of. And so use science, right? Let knowledge empower you rather than depress you, right? So the science of it is that our hormones slow, right? As we as we get older, it gets harder to lose weight. We've yo-yo dieted now, right? So we're very hungry a lot. We have a lower metabolism overall women are in a whole different category than men. I have a whole chapter on women versus men, right? I have to look at that one, you know, and age and even your microbiome, genetics plays a part, right? I and mean, for all these different obstacles we have, you can still lose weight. One is you have to be really persistent. It's going to take you longer, maybe years longer mm-hmm. to wait. Like i get emails from people who said like, you know, it's been like a month and I've only lost a pound I have been there. That has been me before. It takes a lot longer for your your set point to change your body. to want to get out of homeostasis, right? And admit that things are different now and I have to change. Stay the course, just stay with it. Even if it takes you six months to lose five pounds, stay with it. Eventually it's going to come to, it's going to break and you will lose the weight. But the more you've yo-yo dieted, the older you are, the longer that takes. Now, the other thing that I have really adopted is uh, intermittent fasting, right? For all kinds of reasons, it takes advantage of growth hormone. So growth hormone is one great fat-busting hormone. But as we age, we have less of it. Growth hormone levels peak at night. But when you eat right close to that that peak, it actually mitigates the effect of growth hormone. So if you can elongate that overnight fast, either stop eating dinner earlier, eat your breakfast later, whatever, but make it longer, you actually activate more of that growth hormone. It's more effective. Also, you know, you invoke glucagon, which is another good fat-burning hormone. So take advantage of things that we can know. Leptin levels are higher when we sleep adequately as well, right? So make sure you're getting your sleep in there. And then keeping a log, I think you'd be surprised in our, our modern times, right? How how much filler is in our food, right? I have to cook everything because I don't know what's in food. And I notice if I go off when I go out to lunch. I gained a pound that day and I thought I ate healthy, right? I thought I just had like a chicken sandwich, but it's not, it's got gelatins in there. There's all kinds of filler and sugars and you don't really know what you're eating. So those are some of the things. I think salads are are really good too. We have stretch receptors in our gut, right? Salad, you can fill up on fiber. It also helps tilt your microbiome, right? The one that actually loses more weight and keeps you full for longer. There's just a whole host of tricks we have to learn. And There's a lot of science in the book. I actually just put out a course now as well, just to help people kind of navigate through that science, which I think makes it a little bit more digestible, but uh, endless tips in there.
0: Today's podcast is sponsored by NutriSense. It combines cutting edge technology and human expertise. So you can see how your body responds to different types of nutrition, stress, WP for $30 off plus one month of free nutritionist support. Be sure to let them know you're a listener of the Everyday Wellness Podcast when they ask you how you heard about them. This is one of my favorite ways to take care of my health and one of my top recommendations for all of my patients and clients. Do you find yourself struggling to get a good night's sleep? Now, and I love that you touched on my favorite strategy, which is intermittent fasting, as well as touching on how critically important sleep is, you know, and if you're following the chronobiology, the way that our bodies are kind of designed to thrive, we shouldn't be eating within three to four hours of bed and and preferably really stopping when it gets dark out, you know, this endless amount of eating, you know, 16 to 17 times a day, which was one of the recent statistics I read, which was astounding between sugar, sweetened beverages, And food, it's like, no wonder if our bodies are secreting insulin all day long, we're never going to get into this fat burning methodology. Now, one of the things that I'm not sure how many of the listeners understand, but certainly women that are transitioning from, you know, cycling to perimenopause and to menopause, and really talking about how fat is a source of estrogen in and of itself, this whole process of aromatization, where our body will actually, you know, make estrogen from testosterone, which is Yes. Women have testosterone as well as men have estrogen and the net impact of estrogen on our appetite, and fat loss and the way that our abdomen, you know, whether we're gaining or losing weight in our abdomen, can you speak to a little bit about the reproductive differences that women kind of go through as they're getting older? Obviously there's a whole lot that goes on when, you know, we have teenagers that are going through puberty, but as women are aging, what are some of the changes that occur with those sex hormones that impact our ability to lose or gain weight?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a lot. So, you know, clearly when you're going through puberty, right, you're having more of a lot of these hormones, more estrogen, your body's changing and you start packing on fat. Mm -hmm. So, So, you know, girl babies, even from the time of birth, they have more fat than boy babies. It's been studied in thousands of babies, which actually means even before birth, we have more fat. Our bodies just partition more nutrients into fat tissue compared to men's bodies. Women's bodies interact with their fat differently. So like when we're fasting, our bodies will actually reach for fat, right, for calories, whereas men's bodies will reach for glycogen, right, which is a chain of glucose in their muscles. So we we interact with our fat very well, but we also store fat at two to three times the rate that men do. Right? So we, we get fatter as well. So we partition more into our fat, you know, hormones play a part as we get into puberty, then we start to get more fat. Our bodies are wanting more and estrogen obviously has to do with reproduction. So does leptin, right? So fat has a more important role, you could say for women versus men, teenage girls, right? Their bone strength is dependent on their fat. If they get really thin, they actually have more porous bones, right? So there's a, a link with fat and women, That's important. That doesn't seem to be there as much for men. And when women start losing a lot of fat, say ballerinas or runners, right, real athletes, they start to have irregular cycles or they lose their cycle overall. And not only that, their bones, right, start to get in danger. You can even lose brain volume, right? So people with anorexia, right, they start losing volume in their brain. So there's a lot more for women with regards to reproduction with bone health, brain health, all those things with fat. And one thing I tell women is, even though you tend to be fatter than a man, we also tend to be healthier, right? So one part of storing fat away at two, three times the rate is that that fat is not circulating in our blood and depositing in our liver or heart or anywhere else. It's going into fat, whereas it's, where it's supposed to be, right? It's not supposed to be in other places. So although we're a tad fatter, we also tend to be just a little bit healthier, right? And so everything's all good and fine, right, through your your thirties and forties, and then you know, of course, as you start aging those hormones start to ebb. You have less estrogen, less testosterone. So like, even though we've, we've always gained weight easy, it's not even easier <laughs> at old age. And where it distributes changes too, right? Which is interesting. So we have receptors on our fat cells for estrogen and testosterone and growth hormone. And as we get less of that hormone, for whatever reason, our fat distributes a little differently. So it used to distribute preferentially to our buttock area, our legs, right, our arms, but we now start getting more belly fat too, on top of, you know, fat in other areas. And so it becomes a little bit more difficult, you know, from that aspect. But then again, you know, our bodies going through menopause, like I said, it will start to depend on fat for that estrogen, right? So again, fat just has a special role for women. And if you want to stay fit, right, you want to keep your fat in check, you can, like, I don't want to make anyone depressed here, you just have to work at it more, Be you be very mm-hmm. good diet, exercise can be a real help here and not just like, you know, 20 minutes a day, but really try to get in 45 to an hour and a half. You know, the strength building, the aerobic part of it, not just for burning calories, but building the right kind of tissues in your body, right? Increasing levels of brown fat is another thing we can talk about that exercise does, you know, offsetting the, the risk of dementia, so many
0: benefits to exercise with age for women. Absolutely. And I always think about the value of, you know, strength training, as you kind of touched on, Mitochondrial health, thinking of our muscles as glucose reservoirs and how critically important that is. It's interesting in my neighborhood, I live in a fairly large neighborhood, and I see the cardio queens that are out jogging. And I just think, you know, maybe in your twenties and thirties, that serves you well, but as we're getting older, we need, I would say working out smarter, not necessarily harder. And so, you know, in that way, really wanting to make sure that we're picking strategies that are not overtaxing the endocrine system that are allowing us to sleep well allowing us to, you know, live a happy, healthy lifestyle. And the strength training piece is also good for our bones. And what I found really interesting, and I'd forgotten from studying this many years ago, is that it's actually interesting that weight is a better prediction of bone mineral density for women than age. So, you know, people that are really fixated on, I have to remain the weight I was when I was 18 years old or or whatever limiting beliefs we've kind of set for ourselves how really important it is to maintain that healthy bone as well as a healthy weight, because that can, you know, have a kind of a catastrophic effect. You know, I worry a great deal about some of the very, very thin women that I kind of interact with on occasion. And I think my goodness, when you kind of make that transitional period into menopause, you can really set yourself up for osteopenia, osteoporosis, you know, sarcopenia is a natural, you know, function of aging if we don't do enough to maintain our lean muscle mass.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And so it's interesting you say that because I was just speaking to a woman and her doctor told her to gain weight, right? She's in her 70s, all through her 70s, but very thin, I think not more than 80 pounds and has been oh, wow. her whole life. Naturally, like not anorexia, mm-hmm. but I just think very thin, but it has an effect. And I think doctors are seeing some more of this reproductive doctors, mm-hmm. obviously a lot. I interviewed a few and they have to get some women to gain weight to have right that's one thing but then with age too i mean you're absolutely right like a healthy level right is it's somewhat protective as a matter of fact and so i'm not pushing obesity i just want to make that clear that's not healthy either but a healthy level of fat right is the right thing to have and, and you have to almost respect and love your fat and not see it the way we have seen it historically which is it's something bad and should have gotten rid of it at all costs and we should have like 10 percent body fat that's not a goal you want actually
0: no. you want a healthy layer No, and I think that so much of this is propagated by what we see in the media. And I always, I have teenage boys, but I always think about how challenging it is for some of my nieces to be growing up in this time period where everything is you know, every filter that's on, you know, every social media platform and all of the technology that goes into making people who probably are beautiful to begin with, it makes them look, I mean, extraterrestrial. There's just no way that someone in the real world actually looks like some of these people we see on print ads or on TV, you know, it's stuff that's really not sustainable or healthy at all. Yeah. And there's just a bit of body acceptance you have to have. And I, I
1: write about this too. You can actually be overweight and be healthy, right? I write Mm -hmm. about sumo wrestlers, which of course we do not want to look like sumo wrestlers, but they're Mm -hmm. a very interesting case of fit but fat. You know, adiponectin is another hormone that our fat will release and adiponectin has an interesting role in our body of guiding fat in your blood to fat tissue, right? Pulling it out of your fat and guiding it to the right fat deposits, And so we have different kinds of fat. There's subcutaneous fat, right? The fat right underneath your skin. That's the healthy deposit of fat. If you're going to have extra fat, you want it to be subcutaneous. You don't want it to be visceral fat, that underneath your stomach wall, right? The unhealthy fat that gets inflamed. And adiponectin actually helps guide fat in your bloodstream to subcutaneous fat. And when we exercise, our fat will actually release more adiponectin, right? Than, Than usual. And sumo wrestlers... They exercise six hours a day. So they're super fat, right? They eat a ton. They eat like five, 6,000 calories, but then they also exercise for six hours. So they have very healthy levels of adiponectin. So all that fat you see on sumo wrestlers is actually subcutaneous and they don't have metabolic disease the way a lot of other obese people do. And so they're fit but fat, right? So they, all that fat you see, even on their belly, is right underneath their skin and not under the stomach wall. So best not to be overweight or obese, but if you're going
0: to be, if you, as long as you're keeping your subcutaneous fat, you can live with it. That's absolutely amazing. Now, one of the things that I really enjoyed reading in your book was talking about how viruses can impact how easily we can become obese or, you know, develop more fat on our bodies. There was actually a really interesting discussion about the rooster. (laughs) scares people sometimes (laughs) I read that and I was like oh my gosh I would remind myself if I'm ever around barnyard animals to avoid the rooster (laughs) all right so no one's ever determined
1: if that's how I read about this patient Randy that's what we're talking about here and there's a patient Randy okay so let's back up completely (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so there are viruses that are correlated to fatness, right? And it's, it's not completely new because it's actually been known about in animals for some time, right? That canine distemper virus caused fatness. Mice, rouser associated virus caused fatness in chickens. So like this, this link of certain viruses causing fat has been known about, but they have found one, right? That's also linked with fat in humans. It's 8036 and it's been studied. And so if you've been exposed to this virus, have had this virus, they find that people who've had it are about 30%, right? Have about 30% more fat, say, than people who haven't, right? They have a certain propensity for it. They have a higher risk of obesity as well. And ad 36 is an adenovirus. It functions a bit like insulin, if you will. It helps your body absorb glucose, and then it helps your body create more fat molecules and ultimately more fat cells, And so they're actually studying this virus as a substitute for insulin, right? Because can it help you for the people who have trouble, right? With insulin and absorbing glucose, can this help you absorb glucose? But anyway, so you can be exposed to this. the the virus was also found in chickens, like a kind of sister virus that was found in chickens. And the patient I write about, his name is Randy, he's an interesting one because he had struggled with his weight like for, for his whole life. And he finally got to this point of absolute obesity and he was frustrated Cause again, he felt like he was eating very little, yet he would be fatter. And the second he would just eat normal, he would get even fatter. Sure. And so he was very frustrated, landed in a hospital. That the people at the doctors the hospital said, Well, go to this research program at University of Wisconsin, you know, they might be able to help you here. And he goes there and he gets tested for this virus, AD36, and finds out he's positive. And they explain to him what that means to have this virus and how it can lead to fatness. And it's a light bulb going off for him. Like he finally understands like, oh, my goodness, this is why I've had such a problem because I have this virus. It can cause fatness. This is why I can't eat the way other people eat. And he takes all this knowledge and he uses it you know, to his advantage where he exercises a lot. He watches everything he eats now. And he calls it part of the eating world. He's not part of the eating world. There's like the eating world and then people like him, right? And probably people like me, right? We just can't eat as much as other people. But so knowledge is power. So even though at first it might be depressing, it's like you found out you have a disease or something, but now you know what to do. You know how to manage it. You know why you've had that problem. And so, you know, he's been going on fine. He's actually really thin now. He's about, you know, in his 60s, it's 130. He runs every day. He watches wow. what he He's found a way to manage it. But coming back to the chicken, I think he thinks he got it because he got scratched by you know, a rooster when he was young. <laughs> and, of course, very hard to verify. You'd have to test the rooster you know, in his past. I don't know for sure, but it was an interesting story. <laughs> put it in there. So don't be afraid of chickens. For <laughs> sure how it, you know, how transmissible the virus is and how it, how it transmits. So, uh, so relax. But just know that this is another way, another path to fatness that we have to watch out for as well.
0: Slash Cynthia. That's B I O P T I M I Z E R S dot com slash Cynthia and use promo code Cynthia 10 for 10% off of any order. Again, that's promo code Cynthia 10 for 10% off any order. Mighty Maca is a superfood drink mix full of 30 plus natural ingredients, and it was formulated by Dr. Anna Kabeka during her healing journey. Mighty Maca Plus ingredients, which include nourishing ingredients like organic maca powder, turmeric, quercetin, broccoli, parsley, trans-resveratrol, pomegranate extract, and more, were carefully selected for immune support to sustain energy, provide mental clarity, and improve recovery. It also tastes delicious. It supports healthy detoxification dranna.com slash cynthia. That's 10% off your first pur- that's 10% off your first purchase by using the link dranna.com slash Cynthia. It's delicious and nutritious. I think one of the other ones that you really shined a light on in the book is talking about endocrine mimicking chemicals or obesogens that we're exposed to in our environment, our food, our personal care products. And how can, you know, men and women navigate this? I I think it's unfortunate that here in the United States, there's so little legislation that's done to actually protect consumers comparatively to other countries like the EU or Canada. When you look at, you know, what's banned here in the United States, it's not nearly as many chemicals. So what was some of the research that you were looking at and, and how pervasive is this problem?
1: Yeah, you know, we're exposed to things all the time. So it's very hard to avoid everything. But really, it's kind of the four P's you have to watch out for, which are plastics, preservatives, and pesticides, which you can find on produce, they have to watch for certain produce too, like soy, right, can be estrogen mimicking as well. And so, you know, organic foods is something you could do. Stay away from some of those pesticides. If you wash your fruit really well, you might be okay, you know, and preservatives um, as well. BPA, right, in phthalates, or you know, things like that. So, so, not drinking out of plastic bottles or BPA, at least drinking on BPA free, right, plastic, not microwaving food in plastic containers. And again, if you do this once in a while, it's not going to be a big deal. But for people who do this a lot, you know, and I write about one of the patients he started gaining weight and he couldn't understand why he was active. And all of a sudden he felt sluggish. He started gaining weight. And the doctor had to go through this whole path of trying to understand what was different in his life. And it turned out that, you know, he'd recently gotten married. His wife used to cook food, put hot food in the plastic container. He would take it for lunch the next day, microwave it in the container every day, right? He would go through this and he was getting a lot of plastic and kind of gain a system, right. Which then caused weight gain. And so, again, like if you're doing this in small amounts, I don't think you have to worry a lot. But if there's something you're doing, you know, a great deal of, right? Eating, either getting a lot of exposure to pesticides or plastics or some of these, then you should worry. It's just another thing to look at. I don't know that this is a main giant contributor to weight gain. I think in places where they're using, you know, pesticides in your fields that you might live in, this might be a more of an issue for you, but in, in most people's everyday life, it's a watch out and not, not a really big, I think, factor in the kind of obesity epidemic that we see right
0: now. I always look at it as like multifactorial. There's so many reasons that contribute to, you know, the fatness, you know, quotient that you're kind of referring to and how much of it is genetics. You know, we talk a lot about epigenetics and, you know, now we've, Over the last 20 plus years, we've kind of mapped out the whole human genome, but what are some of the propensities, certain things, epigenetics or SMPs that make us more susceptible to gaining weight or becoming more obese throughout our lifetime?
1: There's a whole lot. And again, this is new research and I feel like we're finding out more all the time. I I do write about the genotype, which is there's this kind of these cluster of genes that work in certain races, say, right, throughout history, if they've been exposed to a lot of famine, if that's part of their ancestry. Um, I write about the Pima Indians, right, who face that. And they develop a genotype that enables their body to absorb a lot of calories and store them. They have this like kind of want to store calories because their body's anticipating famine. So, in the case of Pima Indians, right, they came from a race that had endured a lot of famine through desert. Their bodies were very, were, had this thrifty genotype. And as long as they were, you know, gardening and raising their own livestock and eating fresh, you know, vegetables and exercising, that was okay. But there was a time then where, say, like in the early 1900s, you know, more Caucasian settlers were coming, living nearby them. They got introduced to Western food like flour, bacon, right, lard, sugars, all these things. And they started working in factories. And these people Indians India started becoming a beast and the Caucasians who, who live nearby were not. And that's how this was kind of discovered, right? Or This whole theory was put out there about this thrifty genotype of, of those could be bodies of people that just from their ancestry, right? From what they've inherited, they've inherited very thrifty genes that want to save every calorie and pack it on. Whereas there's others who don't have this and they can eat more and kind of get away from it. And there's specifics also, and there's specific genes. There's one called FTO that affects appetite. People who have a certain variation of the FTO gene, they'll they'll pile their plate very high on food. And they they tend to have a propensity for high-density foods such as, you know, cookies and chocolates with cheeses, things like that. And, of course, it can be controlled, right? You just have to be aware that, that, you know, you might have this and you just have to watch out for it. There's also other genes. IRS-1 is another one. Certain variations in that gene will cause more fatness, almost like the 8036 molecule will cause more absorption of glucose and more creation of fat molecules. Those people tend to be a little healthier because the fat's coming out of their circulatory system. So there's just a lot we're finding out about different variants, the genetics of it. And, you know, you could have a genetic test. You can also just kind of look around your family and see, you know, it's almost noticeable if you have one of these. And again, it doesn't mean you have to be obese. It just means you have a propensity to put on fat easier than other people. You have to wash your calories more. Exercise is a great attenuator of those types of genes, even gardening or, or bike riding, any of
0: those will help, you know, mitigate the effects of that genetic disposition. I think it's really fascinating the whole concept of evolutionary-wise, there are certain groups of individuals that their bodies acclimated to, you know, food scarcity. And in essence, the thing, the very thing that protects them now when they're not in food scarcity is what contributes to their propensity for gaining weight.
1: Yeah, that's exactly it. So I always, I joke, I feel like I have a thrifty genotype and I joke with my family that I could live four years without food and nothing bad would happen to me <laughs> i you don't want to survive this because <laughs> we're very efficient at using calories
0: and, and storing calories. Absolutely. And there's even some research to identify that there are certain distributions of bacteria in the gut microbiome that can impact our ability to gain or lose weight, I would love for you to touch on that because that in particular, because we talk so much about leaky gut and the gut microbiome and the health of our gut microbiome, how critically important it is. And yet, you know, this is an area that I just find utterly fascinating.
1: Yeah. So we're not alone, I guess, when it comes to cells in our body, they're not all human. There's a great deal of cells in our body, a good percentage that are microbiome. And it's just bacteria that live on us, that live in our gut. And it actually constitutes what we are. So depending on the bacteria in your gut, you know, you could be absorbing more calories out of your your food versus less. And this is really interesting. They've done these interesting studies where they'll take, you know, fecal matter. They have a a twin pair. One twin's obese and one's lean, right? They'll take fecal matter. They put it into germ-free mice, right? Who have no bacteria. Mm -hmm. What they see is the one that's transfected with fecal matter from the obese twin gets fat. The one who's transfected with fecal matter from the thin twin does not get fat, right? So there's something in our guts that can cause this. The good part is you may have control over it. So what they do find is the greater diversity of foods you eat as far as fruits and vegetables, you start tilting towards a microbial distribution that's associated with leanness, right? It absorbs less food out of your gut. So if you eat more raw fruits and vegetables, not only are you eating fewer calories and getting more full because of fiber, a lot of that is going to pass and not get absorbed into your body where it's going to get passed as waste. And your microbiome is now going to tilt towards one that absorbs less calories. So it's it's like fat loss, you get fat loss, right? Mm -hmm. You eat healthier, right? You eat calories that are more food that's more filling and less calories. And then also you change your body to be thinner, right? And then the foods associated with higher energy, like flour, sugars, that type of thing, it tilts your microbiome to one that's very efficient at absorbing calories out of your gut. So when you eat a bowl of Cheerios, say, this is 100 calories on the box, depending on your microbiome in your gut, you could be getting 120 calories, right? Or you could be getting 80 calories. And it's another factor. So, you know, throughout The Secret Life of Fat, I write about this a lot that, you know, fat gain begets fat gain, right? mm-hmm. fat loss begets fat loss. So the more things you do that help fat loss, so you eat healthier, eat more leafy greens, eat a lot of raw vegetables. It makes you full, you pass more as waste, you tilt your microbiome to be one that lets a lot of calories go. The more you exercise, right, you're going to build, you're going to burn calories, number one. Secondly, you're building tissues like bone and muscle that also burn more calories overall. And also exercise is associated with more brown fat. Mm -hmm. So we have those different types of fat. Like I said, there's white fat, brown fat, beige fat, right? White fat's what we think about when we want to lose fat, but there's brown fat that actually burns calories, right? So it's total opposite of how we think of fat. And there's beige fat. Beige fat can turn brown and it does. So when you exercise, exercise is a trigger. So, Exercise, right? You build up the right tissues, you burn calories, and you build up more brown fat that also burns calories. So again, weight loss begets weight loss. And these are the kinds of things that, especially if you have stubborn fat, you have to be really savvy about because you start to need every trick in your in the tool bag, right? It's not just enough now to eat less and exercise a bit like some of the your thin friends might do. If you come from a genetic you know, predisposition where people gain way easier, if you're older, your hormones, right, the fat-busting hormones like testosterone growth hormone are ebbing. You need more in your toolbox. If you have yo-yo dieted, you've got this very clever body now that knows exactly how to get its fat back. You also need every tool you've got. So the, the book and the course is really for people with very stubborn fat. Now you need to be smarter. You need to understand your body better. You need to dig into some of these tools. And- you know, just rest assured it can work, right? It can work for you. It might take a lot longer. You might have to be much more diligent, but you will start to see that weight
0: loss if you stay with it. You've left the listeners with so many things to unpack and apply to their personal lives. And I would love to have you back. Let us know how it is easiest to connect with you on social media, your website, and what you're doing next. I would imagine you probably have another book or idea in the pipeline. I have too many ideas. That's fun. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, no, I love to connect with readers. So you can find me on
1: Facebook at Sylvia Terra PhD. And the book itself is on Amazon, The Secret Life of Fat. I also have a website, www.thesecretlifeoffat.com, and on that website you can find uh, some of the articles, some of the media I've done, and also the course. So the book is a really good read. i tried to make it an easy read. So I tell science to the stories of patients and doctors and researchers. So it's very easy to digest. At the same time, it's really packed with a lot of science and facts. The course takes you through it a little bit slower, right? Kind of day by day. It's a little bit more of a how-to rather than just a science education. So that might be helpful for people if you want something paced like that. And you can find that course on the website, thesecretlifeoffat.com. And uh, my email's on there too, if anyone wants to get in touch. And so, uh, and my next ideas, you know, what I'm really interested into now is um, mind over fat. So I have a chapter in the book called Mind Over Fat about how getting into the right mindset, right, really enables people to lose weight. Depending on what's going on in your life, if there's a lot of stress, right, like like getting serious about weight loss, exerting discipline is like exerting muscles. Mm-hmm. There are times where it's right to change your life and exert all that willpower. There are times where it's not. You have to treat your willpower like it's a muscle. You have to give it breaks in between to recharge. And I'm finding that kind of fascinating. And especially with COVID, right? We just saw a lot of people gain weight. And it's often correlated with stress, right? There's Mm -hmm. a stress like a depression or recession or a job loss or divorce people gain weight mm-hmm. and COVID, we absolutely saw it we feel out of control We're at home right there's uncertainty in the air there's quite a bit of weight gain so, so again it's just a testament to like the right mindset is really important to start that journey and there's research on people right the national society for weight loss right they, they do a lot of research on people who lost weight and been able to keep it off so there's lots of you know tips and tidbits we can learn from them on how to get there. But you have to be in the right mindset first. Then all of this stuff becomes not so hard.
0: Well, I so agree. And as they say, what wires together fires together. So the mindset piece is without question, absolutely critical. Thank you so much for your time this afternoon. I definitely will want to have you back. And for listeners, this is one of my favorite books I've read this year. I read it and have lots of earmarked pages. My team was laughing they said, you know, earmarked pages for Cynthia is a sure sign that it's going to be a recommended book. So thank you again for your hard work and effort in this book. It does not go unappreciated. Right. Thank you. It was great being here. Thanks for listening to Everyday Wellness. If you loved this episode, please leave us a rating and review, subscribe, and remember, tell a friend. And if you want to connect with us online, visit the link in the show notes.